Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everybody. Got one today about an unfolding geopolitical crisis. You know, for a change. Uh, Russia has been amassing troops along the Ukraine border because uh, Vladimir Putin wants to establish the glory of the uh, former Soviet Union. Boring. No, it's actually uh, quite scary because uh, Putin is an awful guy. He has people killed uh, and not infrequently. Uh, You remember that after uh, George W. Bush met the first time with Putin, W. said, I I looked into his eyes and I saw his soul. Uh, I once asked Joe Biden, uh, this one, he was vice president, uh, whether he had looked into Putin's eyes. And Joe said, yes. And I asked, what did you see? And Biden said, his eyes. My guest today uh, is Max Bergman. Uh, this is Max's second time uh, joining us. Max Bergman, of course, uh, Louis B. Mayer's right-handed MGM during its heyday in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. No, I got that that wrong. Max is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, a nonpartisan, but let's face it, liberal think tank in D.C., where he focuses on Europe, Russia, and U.S. security. Uh, he served in the State Department during the Obama administration, And uh, we, of course, discussed the uh, tense and very dangerous situation in Ukraine. Now, we recorded this on Thursday, January 27th, and we're dropping this on uh, Sunday the 30th. But I make uh, the prediction during our conversation that Russia will not invade until after the Olympics. And I think I make a pretty strong case, but we'll see. We'll see. But I do want to talk about uh, Justice Breyer's announcement this week and some of the awful stuff I've heard (laughs) from the usual suspects. And um, as you'll remember, during the 2020 campaign, Joe Biden pledged to nominate a a black woman for the Supreme Court. So as you might expect, the uh, usual suspects were real dicks about it. Here's uh, Tucker Carlson. I will appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court. That was Biden's promise. All right. But which black woman exactly? Biden didn't tell us. Biden didn't mention the Supreme Court nominee's legal qualifications or judicial philosophy or ability to perform one of the most important jobs in the country. He didn't even tell us she was a nice person. All he said was she's going to be black and she's going to be female because to him, that's all that mattered. Now, do you think Tucker remembers when Ronald Reagan pledged during the 1980 campaign that he'd appoint a a woman to the Supreme Court? Here's a recording of, of, of when he made that promise. Yeah, a number of moderate Republican women uh, may not vote for me because I'm the uh, first major Republican presidential candidate uh, to be against the Equal Rights Amendment. And so uh, to get some of these women's votes, 
I am committing to nominating the first woman to the Supreme Court. I can't promise that she'll be qualified or have any kind of education in law or whether she's a nice person, but she'll be a woman. And that should be enough to keep you idiotic Connecticut housewives happy. Thank you. Uh, now, uh, Tucker at one point starts the, starts to go into the nominees. Now, um, here's his description of Sherilyn Eiffel. So what are the potential nominees that CNN has declared are authentically black and therefore eligible for this job? Well, let's see. There's Sherilyn Eiffel. Sherilyn Eiffel's not even a judge. She's some kind of political activist who works at the NAACP. She is executive director of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. That's the same job that Thurgood Marshall had when he was nominated by Lyndon Johnson. Now, I think you'll agree that all the snark is really offensive. It's, it always is with Tucker, but here he really gets down to being such a flat-out dick that I almost don't want to play it, but it's, it's just instructive, I think. At, at just how low he can go. So you have to wonder at this point, since we're going by skin color and gender, why Joe Biden is ignoring the obvious choice. Why doesn't Biden strike a real blow for equity and just nominate Bridget Floyd? Who's that? What's George Floyd's sister? She's not a judge or a lawyer or, or whatever, but at this stage, who cares? Clearly, that's not the point anymore, this law stuff. As Nebraska Senator Roman Horosco once said in defense- This is the kind of thing that just cracks him up. Using the, the sister of a black man who was slowly killed by a cop kneeling on his throat for, for over eight minutes. Now, of course, they put up a picture of her and it was, a you know, picked a picture where, okay, of course it would be ridiculous to ever be on the Supreme Court. It, it just so offensive. I got in a little trouble uh, when I was presiding in, in the Senate. Uh, Mitch McConnell was giving his uh, final speech against Elena Kagan. This is the final speech of the Republicans, and it was awful. And at one point during this awful, awful speech, uh, Mitch said, no one has any doubt that Miss Kagan is bright and personable and easy to get along with. But the Supreme Court is not a social club. If getting along in polite society were enough reason to put someone on the Supreme Court, then we wouldn't need a confirmation process at all. Now, that's a direct quote, and I, I laughed at that because she was president of Harvard Law, <laughs> Harvard Law School, and she'd been solicitor general. So I started laughing at it, and I got on a laughing jag, and everything he said after that made me laugh, and he got very mad at me. Now, offensive stuff uh, came from all different directions. Uh, here's a great one from uh, Susan Collins. As you know, I felt that the timetable for the last nominee was too compressed. Um, this time, there is no need for any rush. We can take our time, have hearings, go through the process, which is a very important one. It is a lifetime appointment, after all. I thought the last one was, was too compressed. Huh. I wonder why. Oh, because Coney Barrett was 
sworn in nine days before the election. Nine days before the election. And, of course, Merrick Garland, whom Barack Obama nominated after Scalia's death in February of, of 16, oh, we can't take him up because it's an election year. Well, they they rushed this. I think she was 27 days. Usually these things are like 60 days or something like that. They, they rushed her so she could at least be sworn in before the election so it didn't look quite as bad, especially if uh, Trump lost the election, which he did. So here's uh, when she says, what, what's the rush? You know, uh, here it is. We have 50. We have 50 senators, Democratic senators. Uh, my friend Bob Saget died uh, a couple weeks ago. Just no warning, just died. People die. I hope this does not happen. But what if a Democratic senator from a state that has a Republican governor dies? before we get a chance to do this. Then we only have 49, and then McConnell will block it. So that's why. And you know that, Susan Collins, don't you? Of course you do. All right. Well, let's let's talk about some something fun, uh, which, of course, is um, Putin. <laughs> Maybe invading uh, Ukraine. Uh, this is this is a uh, really substantive and uh, I think a fascinating uh, discussion with with Max Bergman. So um, it really is. It really is a uh, a terrific one. You know, for a change. The best way to learn a language: immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. 
absolutely, positively FedEx. Max, uh, here's my theory. I have a theory right now, which is that the Russians are not going to do anything, and certainly in terms of an, any kind of invasion at all, until after the Olympics. I think that's potentially plausible. I think we're probably not going to see anything in the next couple weeks, which would at least get us through kind of the opening ceremony and, and I don't know, maybe the first uh, figure skating events. But I think you're right that the like end of February is currently looking pretty good. There's was an announcement yesterday that there's going to be talks between Russia and uh, European countries and, and Ukraine over, and that's going to happen in a couple weeks. So I think if there was any invasion, uh, it's likely happening at the latter end of February. So I think you know it could happen imminently, but we're still looking for a few signs of of military mobilization on some key supporting pieces to to come into play, which could happen. We could be seeing you know imminently on their part, on their part, on their part. Right, right. Because the invasion will be dictated by them and not by us. So, uh, and, yeah. But I think you're right. I think the Olympics are going to be a big moment for the Chinese Communist Party, for Xi Jinping. And if Russia does invade, it's going to be pretty isolated from Europe and will be looking toward China. So I don't think they'll want to kind of anger the Chinese. So I think you're, you're right, at least at the beginning part of the Olympics, I think we're, we're uh, not going to see anything imminently. I don't think at all during the Olympics, because you have the whole world together, right? All the media from the world is in one place. Right. And so, and every other country in the world is going to go, hey, don't do that. I, I mean, almost every other country in the world, right? Yeah. And, and you know, if we go back to 2014, when <laughs> yeah. Russia, you know, occupied Crimea and invaded Ukraine, you know, they hosted the Olympics in Sochi and they invaded right after the Olympics ended. Now, that was sort of dictated by the collapse of the Ukrainian government, but it was after the Olympics in which the Russians really pushed the uh, Yanukovych regime to kind of crack down on the protesters that were occupying the square. So I think, you know, Putin loves big global sporting events. You know, they they effectively bought the the World Cup uh, in 2018. They they wanted to have the Olympics in 2014. They see they he sees it as a big sort of uh, sign of national prestige. And so yeah, I think you're right that he'll want to respect uh, Xi Jinping. But we'll see. You know, it could be that their their timeline is their timeline, and sometimes a military invasion uh, will take precedence over a global sporting event. But I think I think it I think we're not going to see anything at least in the first for the first week of the Olympics. I just think it's bad press. Yeah. That's all. And then you, you'll see Russian athletes that are competing and, you know, it will, you know, cast a yeah. shadow over them as well. And there's, you know, the biathlon is where you ski and then shoot. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine if like, uh, you know, there's a Russian uh, biathlete and a Ukraine biathlete yeah. and they both have guns and, <laughs> They're skiing. I don't. They shouldn't invade that. Well, there's a you know the famous water polo match between at least famous in Hungary between Hungary and the Soviet Union in 1956 that the Soviets invaded to put down you know a popular pro democracy pro West sure. uprising, and huge. there was blood in the water was the sort of famous headline that that came out of of <laughs> there was it got pretty ugly. Yeah, and then that's when a lot of Hungarians came to the United States. Exactly. There was a huge refugee exit, exodus in 1956. And then that that's when um, some of your right-wing think tanks got some Hungarians. <laughs> yes. Well, Isn't that true? <laughs> <laughs> I think. Well, there was, you know, uh, the Hungarians felt 
sort of badly betrayed by Eisenhower, who had, I think there was a sense in Hungary that the if they took action, that the U.S. would be there. And that did not occur. Um, and so, okay, well, then let's let's see how the, the Ukrainians feel. Or do you call them Ukrainians or you call them Ukrainians? Ukrainians. Okay, let's see how they feel about us. Okay, why is he doing this, uh, Putin? Uh, explain that. Let's just go to the basics. Evidently, he feels that Ukraine should really be part of the old it was part of the old soviet union obviously this part of the russian sphere there's a lot of russian language speakers in ukraine etc right if you uh have the misfortune of sort of uh following kind of russia uh national security twitter land this is sort of a vibrant debate now i think there's sort of two schools there's one school that says this is really all about nato expansion that occurred in the 1990s where uh the u.s pushed nato to expand eastward sort of in some ways poking Russia in the face and sort of bursting its sphere of influence. And now Russia is simply very concerned that Ukraine uh, will uh, increasingly become part of NATO. It sees Ukraine getting closer to, to NATO and the European Union, and then Russia sees that as sort of a, a real strategic vulnerability. And so this is all sort of about NATO and security concerns. I think there's some truth to that, but the other school sees it much more driven, I think, by domestic considerations, by Russian nationalism, where essentially, you know, my view of Putin is that he's effectively a Russian imperialist. He's a Russian nationalist that wants to recreate the grandeur of the Soviet Union, of, of czarist empires. And, you know, there's sort of a saying that, you know, Russia without Ukraine is, is, is sort of a, a middling country um, and is not an empire. And so I think he sees Ukraine as as not just part of Russia's sphere, but effectively as the key to Russia being a great power. And then without that, it can't be a great power. And when you look at some of the things that Putin has said in the past, that one of the you know, greatest geopolitical tragedies of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. A lot of his tenure, the past 22 years, has been about trying to make the Russian state powerful again. You know, he's an old KGB guy. It's a big motivation. And he sees the loss of Ukraine from the Soviet Union uh, as a major mistake that happened in the 1990s. So I think this is largely driven by the fact that in the last eight years, since uh, Ukraine had a, a mass uprising in 2014, uh, uh, the Maidan revolution, the revolution of dignity, as they call it, and Russia invaded, that the moment Russian started to kill Ukrainian soldiers, it really turned Ukraine against Russia. And that sort of pushed Ukraine more toward Europe and in the West. And so my view of this is pretty simple. Putin is sort of desperate to keep hold of Ukraine and Ukraine wants nothing to do with Russia. It wants to uh, be associated with the West and with Europe and with NATO. And Putin just can't handle that. And the only way to sort of reverse that is through invasion. He's tried sort of corruption. He's tried assassinations. He's tried all sorts of other ways to destabilize Ukraine. And they've been effective, but they haven't brought Ukraine back under Russia's orbit. So I've always said if corruption and assassinations don't work, you <laughs> got to invade. You just got to invade. You know, that's, that's the only thing left. But, you know, I think that's kind of where we are. And, you know, they had this peace agreement, uh, the Minsk agreement, that was signed after Russia invaded and Russia put forces into Ukraine and Ukraine was sort of forced to sign this treaty, uh, this agreement, you know, at the point of a gun. 
which effectively would give Russia sort of veto power. It would essentially give the regions that Russia had taken over in eastern Ukraine uh, sort of veto power over the direction of Ukraine as a country. You know, it's imagine sort of Montana can just, you know, veto anything that's happening. I mean, in some ways that's what's happening in the U.S. Senate, uh, except it's West Virginia. <laughs> but Ukraine effectively didn't implement the peace agreement. So they signed it at the point of a gun and then we're just like, well, we're not going to implement this. So part of this is that uh, Russia doesn't really believe there is a diplomatic track because Ukraine has, you know, I think rightfully refused to implement an agreement that it was being coerced to to sign. So, you know, that has sort of left Russia with this kind of military option. And what we've seen over the last year is Russia putting in place the pieces to conduct not what, you know, there's a lot of theories about what Russia is planning, but it looks like an Iraq style invasion force. Our invasion force of Iraq. Yes. Yeah. Like, okay. when, when I, you know, when we invaded Iraq. <laughs> and, but they with, won't be greeted with flowers and, and candy. I, uh, I don't think so. I mean. Like, like we were. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, Baghdad initially, you know, there was, you know, we took down the statue of Saddam and people were quite happy. That, that's, that's true. <laughs> but then I mean, we fucked up by not uh, actually governing the yeah, place I, and securing and, it and uh, and telling uh, Saddam's army, get out of here. You're out. You're fired. We're not going to pay you. And take your guns with you. <laughs> I mean, I, and I think one thing that you know, we look back at Iraq as the whole thing being a fiasco, which it was. But you know, the Russians just may look back at it and be like, well, you know, the Americans invaded Iraq with you know 135,000 troops, which is about what the Russians have surrounding Ukraine. They didn't really need that many forces. They did it very quickly. But man, was it stupid to just like disband the Iraqi military and just say, yeah, go home. You're all unemployed. But yes, you can keep your guns. And wasn't that and so amazing? We, yeah. It, I mean, it, when you look back at the decision making and the, the kind of arrogance of the Bush administration and how it, it handled the aftermath. Was that Bremer? Yeah, it was it was Paul Bremer that signed and, this and, order. And Rumsfeld. Yeah, the coalition provisional authority said, you know, we're going to just debathify. The, the army is done. Anybody here who knows how to run anything, <laughs> you're fired. <laughs> uh, if you know how to create electricity and how how those generators work, get out of here. And, and please don't create an insurgency. <laughs> yeah, and you purify the water. Get out of here. We don't so, need you. So maybe, you know, the Russians... Why do I have Paul Bremer talking like some like a movie guy in the 40s? Get out of here, I tell you. <laughs> I, okay. I, I could see it. This I isn't helping it. us understand Ukraine. So let's, let's, let's put us in... The, now, let's switch over to uh, your, your Joe Biden, uh, your Tony Blinken, and you're thinking, oh, boy. What do we do here? Because we don't, we, we can't put troops in there. We can't have our troops fighting no. Russian troops because then that could escalate into uh, a really, uh, what's that called? A nuclear exchange <laughs> and the end of civilization. So we can't do that. And, but uh, we can support the Ukrainians with all kinds of things. And so can the rest of NATO, right? Right. But what are our options? Because it, it sounded like, obviously, in that press conference, President Biden screwed up a little bit by mm. saying, you know, if it's just a little bit of invasion, we, you know, it's, it's, we won't do anything. So now you made that clear, I think, that what he was talking about is if they did a little cyber thing, we wouldn't yeah. do something, right? 
So what's our quandary? Where are we? Where? What's going on diplomatically? What's Wendy Sherman, uh, Tony Blinken? What are those guys dealing with? What are their parameters and what are we trying to do here? And how can we uh, miscalculate? Because <laughs> we usually do. Yeah. I, so I think the first thing, you know, I've seen a lot of people sort of saying, oh, the U.S. is like hyping the threat that we're sort of warmongering it. And this, you know, sort of echoes of Iraq. And it's the exact opposite that this administration, <laughs> much to my chagrin okay. to, to some degree, like didn't want to focus on, on Russia. They want to focus on China. You know, they had a, a, a summit with Putin back in June it, with an effort to create a, quote, stable and predictable relationship with Vladimir Putin and with Russia, which a lot of analysts like me were like, I don't really know if this is possible. But part of that was like, we got a lot going on in the rest of the world. And if we can just sort of put Russia in a box and focus elsewhere. So what happened is they start seeing Russia mobilizing forces and they look at the intel and say, oh, my God, this is real. And so you have an administration that doesn't want to focus this talking about the threat because the threat is real. I think that's the first thing to sort of understand. But your point about the military options and what options are available, you know, Ukraine, there is no military option for the U.S. to defend Ukraine. And it's not simply because Ukraine is not in NATO and therefore we don't have this obligation to. It's because the Russian military is not ISIS. It's not Saddam Hussein's Iraqi military. This is, you know, Russia is a near peer adversary. Like, yes, the U.S. military is bigger, but we're not there. Russia has immediate escalation dominance. And what I mean is, you know, a yeah, war- they're there. They're they're right there. Right. They have 100,000 troops there. Like we don't. So if we wanted to defend Ukraine, that would require, you know, we would have to start moving the aircraft carriers. We'd start bringing in forces. That doesn't happen like that. Like, you know, the Russians have spent the past year building up their forces. Oh, the war in Iraq in 2003 took a long time to build up our forces, you know, in, in Kuwait and elsewhere. So what would happen is the Russians would immediately see that we're starting to move forces to Ukraine and would, I think, I- invade immediately. So that the military option just isn't one, and we don't want to get in a war with Russia. So that's not an option. But there's a lot of tools that we have at our disposal. Number one is the security assistance. And this is something that we have been doing since 2014. The Obama administration started really ramping up security assistance. It's one of the things that I worked on when I was there. And the U.S. now provides... I think around $650 million to Ukraine per year, which makes it the third largest recipient in the world after Israel and Egypt. So we've been putting uh, a lot of weapons and support to the Ukrainian military and really helping them rebuild. That doesn't mean they're prepared for a, a massive invasion. In some ways, they've been fighting kind of an insurgency in the eastern part of the country. So right. we'll see how they stand up. But we're providing them with certain weapons that can take out tanks, that could potentially shoot down uh, Russian aircraft, that are essentially the insurgent weapons. That in this case, what the Iranians were doing in Iraq was providing weapons to forces that were fighting the U.S. And in some ways, that were the you know it's the opposite here, where we would be providing weapons to Ukraine to defend themselves. And I think the way they would have to do it is potentially fight an insurgency. But I think the most effective tools we have are on the economic side. And this is where the talk about sanctions, going after oligarchs, and this kind of new tool that has sort of been rolled out by the administration or discussed is export restrictions. So that means like semiconductors, anything with sort of U.S. intellectual property or U.S. parts and components, if you're going to export that to Russia, you have to go to the Commerce Department, you have to get a license. 
So we're talking things that go into washing machines and advanced fighter aircraft. And you can cut off that technology. And I think that would have a real impact on the Russian economy. Because they sell these, like, for example, weapons, right? So, so they need these chips and stuff right. and, and we can stop them from getting them. Yeah. I mean, it's like what's happening with used cars or, or you know, buying a new car. There's a chip shortage. And how do you, you know, we have you know, car prices start going up. And this would hit, I think, the Russian consumer, it hit Russian industry. And, you know, we don't quite know the full effect of how effective this would be because we haven't done it on this scale. But what we've seen from the administration is a clear signaling to Russia. You know, every leaked story you see in the New York Times or Washington Post about U.S. considering this option and then officials off the record describing it is a deliberate effort to signal to Vladimir Putin that you may think this is going to be like 2014 again where basically we did sanctions and then we kind of walked away. You know, there was the Trump administration, which didn't implement sanctions and sanctions lose their bite over time. And so Russia absorbed kind of an economic blow and then just kept motoring on. But this will be a lot more costly. And that's been what the administration has been signaling. But I think the key thing to understand is- Is is the feeling that we under-responded to Crimea and to, you know, their incursion into- Eastern Ukraine. I think there's a feeling we didn't follow through. If you go back to 2014, there's a lot of things that the Obama administration left on the table. And part of that was because we had never sanctioned an economy as large as Russia. There was going to be huge negative economic impacts on the European Union, on potentially our recovery, our own economic recovery. So we didn't quite know. And I think if you, knowing what you know now, I think we would have probably pushed to make the sanctions even stronger. But the real thing was that when Obama left office in 2016, we had just discovered that the Russians had attacked our election and he left office and then Trump came in. And there was then no push by the Trump administration to do anything vis-a-vis Russia. Congress passed a really- Well, you know, oh, that, oh, never mind. There's a podcast for that. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I think I, I think fundamentally that Donald Trump was compromised by Russia and had no interest in uh, wanting to take strong action towards Vladimir Putin. Now, Congress tried to force his hand and passed a really strong sanctions bill in 2017. And what happened is the Trump administration basically didn't implement it. Like they did just enough where they weren't like in violation of not implementing, you know, a law that Congress has passed, but it was incredibly minimal amount of sanctions. So I think Putin is sort of hoping that something similar happens, right? That he'll invade, there'll be sanctions, but the West doesn't want to have any negative economic blowback on themselves. And this is particularly true with Europe, which is dependent on Russian gas. You know, 40% of European gas comes from Russia. Yeah, tell me about that. Now, what happens if uh, we do a full response and they cut off gas to Europe? Europe's going to have to scramble. And I think there's been this long-held view by Europeans that this is sort of a mutual dependence, right? Europe needs Russian gas, but Russia needs Europe's money and revenue. And I think that's true generally, but the key thing is that Russia isn't a company, right? They're not an energy company. They're a country that has geopolitical ambitions and operates in a way that puts geopolitics first. I think what will happen, I mean, I think there's a real danger. Russia invades, US and Europe do sanctions, and then Russia cuts off gas to Europe. There's a paper out today from a a think tank, Bruegel in Europe, where I was reading through where they were looking at what Europe would do. And the options aren't great. (laughs) You know, they would scramble, they would try to like ship more LNG to various European ports, but basically they would have to do some rationing. They'd have to like tell some, you know, major industries, well, you have to stop producing something right now because there's not enough energy to go around. 
and they would have to tell their people, you know, if it was cold to turn the thermostats down, which is not a great thing as if you know, European political leader will want that. And I think what part of what Vladimir Putin is counting on Jimmy Carter can tell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, Europe, I, think, uh, this yeah. one, I <laughs> can't do Carter. I wish I could. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, and and what you're saying is also like companies that manufacture stuff need natural gas to power their their factories, and so this would have an economic hit. And also in 2018, H.R. McMaster, who was Trump's national security advisor, mm-hmm. on his last day in office as he was leaving, he authorized some hard hitting sanctions against this Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska and his company Rusal, which is a big aluminum company. And it was like, yes, finally sanctions. But they weren't well thought out. They weren't coordinated. And what happened is that Rusal, major global aluminum producer, and when you sanction them, the price of aluminum skyrocketed. Europeans freaked out. They were factories in Ireland that were going to close down. And the Trump administration then unwound the sanctions. And so one of the challenges is that Russia has leverage over us because they're ingrained in the Western economy. Part of what's happening right now is the U.S. is working with Europe to figure out, okay, who can we sanction? What would be the economic blowback? The thing that the U.S. needs to do is take kind of a long-term approach. We need to deleverage from Russian influence, economic influence over us. We need to take some immediate action right away, but then we can turn the screws at, uh, at essentially our pace. But we have to be committed to doing that. And I think the key is that it's not about you know strong sanctions in the first month and then walking away. This has to be sort of a five to 10-year effort where you know 10 years from now, if we're having this conversation... We're like, yeah, Vladimir Putin invading Russia. That was really dumb. Like, look what it's done to, you know, the Russian economy, to his tenure as as leader as Russia. So, so the Russians have a uh, spectrum of, of stuff they can do, and uh, so do we. What we do is going to be a reaction to what, what they do, right? Right, right. Okay. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Max Bergman. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. 
We're back with Max Bergman. So what are you looking at? I mean, what's the calculus here? What are their... This is complicated. What is Tony Blinken thinking? What what is the president thinking? What is Wendy Sherman thinking? What 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 are we thinking? And what are our allies thinking? What are we thinking? And and what are our options considering their what whatever they do, depending on how serious what they do is. So I think what what they're thinking is this is going to happen. And I think they're looking at the intel. And I think you saw the president's comments that they think that Putin is sort of spun up and that invasion is is imminent. And I think their approach is, but, but uh, what kind? I mean, are there different kinds of invasions? I mean, there. Are, yeah, no, no, yeah, that's a that's a great question. This is there's oh, a lot you. of speculation about what, and you know, I see people sort of theorizing that maybe Russia will just do sort of a limited incursion and create this sort of land bridge connecting Crimea, which is sort of a peninsula that is kind of cut off, uh, that you know Russia occupies and connect it to Eastern Ukraine. And maybe they'll just do limited strikes on some Ukrainian forces. You, you sound skeptical about I that. Sa- I'm pretty skeptical because what we have to remember about 2014, you know, according to Russia, they didn't invade anybody, that this was just sort of all a popular uprising. Remember, it was little green men in 2014. There was, you know, Russian bases in Crimea. And Russian soldiers came out and took off their insignia and wore ski masks. And the Russians denied that these were active duty Russian forces. And they've always denied that Russian military intervened also in, in eastern Ukraine. So, you know, they had this sort of veneer. You, of you uh, cannot see their faces. How yeah. Uh, who could be? Uh, <laughs> the, the, the Ukraine, the <laughs> Russian speaking Ukraine. Ukraine, <laughs> but but Something you know like that. that that plausible that not, I wouldn't say plausible deniability, but that deniability at the <laughs> yeah. very least like froze some Europeans. But the moment you just send and and have pronounced to the world that you know you're invading another country, you're gonna get the sanctions. <laughs> the sanctions are coming. You're gonna get the economic hit. You're gonna get the diplomatic isolation. So all the costs that we have to deploy are going to be there. Now, maybe not quite as strong if they like do something very limited, but really they've geared us up to respond to them. I don't get what you get by just taking a little bit more territory. I think what they want is a regime change in Kiev, in, in the capital, and they want a Ukraine that is more aligned with Russia. And the way their forces are arrayed is to basically go to the Dnieper River, which splits the country in half between east and west, and then potentially move forces to Odessa and take Odessa, which is to the west of the Dnieper River. And then by they're currently doing, quote unquote, military exercises in Belarus. You know, there's a big protest movement in Belarus in August of 2020 that that you know was not successful uh and that just pushed the government of Belarus Lukashenko closer to Putin what that means for Ukraine's strategic outlook is that the Dnieper River is no longer kind of the this moat because Russian forces are doing exercises on the other side of it in Belarus which means that they're only about a two and a half hour <laughs> drive down to Kiev so they could potentially surround the capital and for me if you put these forces there I don't get what a limited incursion gets you. It gets you all the costs without the kind of real gain of having deposed the regime. And I think this looks like a regime change force. I've seen some speculation that, no, the forces need to be a lot bigger. You know, if we run back to the Iraq war period, like I'm, there's Eric Shinseki's out there, the general who was saying we need hundreds of thousands of troops. Right, and he wasn't right. wrong if you're occupying. But I think the Russians may think that they'll just go in depose the government, put in a new sort of Russian puppet, and they'll leave sort of a, a few thousand troops 
they won't have to fully occupy. They'll pay Ukrainian police and, and authorities more money, perhaps. They won't disband the Ukrainian military that we did. It's confusing. Like, that strikes me as a lot of wishful thinking. Uh, wishful thinking on the on the Russians' part or our part? I think on the Russians' part. Like, there's yeah. so many things that could go wrong here. If I was a Russian military officer, I'd be like, mm, you know, I don't know about this. But sometimes leaders decide what they want. And I think what we have to think about is, I think the Iraq war provides useful analogy for us as Americans to kind of, I could see, you know, if you're in the Kremlin, you're looking at Ukraine and you're like, you know what, if we don't do it now, Ukraine's only going to get stronger. They're going to get more NATO weapons. It's only going to get harder. They're just going to be more of a threat. If you think about Iraq and weapons of mass destruction, it was, you know, Saddam's building weapons of mass destruction. This is going to threaten us. The threat's only going to grow. So you get this sort of paranoia that we have to do it now. We have to do it now. And then you start thinking about, well, what do you do? And the only thing that makes sense is to like really go all in. But then once you go all in, like, how do you prevent an insurgency from happening? How are you? And, think and you it's won't, be okay? you won't, won't prevent that because, uh, Ukrainians, there'll be an insurgency. There'll be continued fighting and it won't be unlike Iraq in that there'll be terrorists. You know, right. the, so the Russians will have to be occupying it like they occupied Afghanistan. Yeah. And, you know, they may be thinking the Americans tried to take over all of Iraq, including the Sunni areas, but they had just stuck to the Shia territory that hated Saddam. They might have been okay. You know, Ukraine is sort of divided ethnically between Ukrainians and, and ethnic Russians. Now it gets all mixed up and it's not a clear uh, dividing line. In general, it's more Russian the further east you go in Ukraine. And so they may be thinking, you know what? You know, we'll be greeted as liberators by some of these people who don't like the, the regime in, in Kiev. And maybe that's true for some people, but <laughs> insurgency doesn't necessarily require a mass popular movement. So I think there's got to be a lot of wishful thinking on behalf of the Kremlin about how this will play out. I mean, the other thing is that they're not trying to create a democracy, right? They are trying, you know, this is a regime that is willing to use force and extrajudicial killings and to operate in an autocratic way and to act violently. So that's probably another thing that, quote unquote, they have going for them that we did. Yeah, it's easier. It's easier to do. That we were, you know, ostensibly trying to create a democratic Iraq and have, you know, Western press that was there pointing out everything that wasn't going right. So what's our response? To that, I mean, and and what are the what are the range of responses? Now, but let's assume th they do uh, pretty much along the lines of what you just said. What do we do? What are our responses? What what do we have to do to be uh, credible, to be yeah. taken seriously for the next time? Also, I want to ask you about sanctions against oligarchs because I'm not sure that I completely understand how that works. Yeah, and I, it's been explained to me, but I'd like to. I wouldn't mind hearing it again why that's supposed to work and what that does. So I think, you know, we would, if, if a full scale invasion happens, we have to understand the stakes here. And the stakes are, I think, enormous. China would be watching this other countries where, you know, other countries around the world have irredentist desires to sort of take territory and rescue stranded ethnic. Yeah. Brethren. Taiwan will be like Taiwan going like, Hmm. Yeah. And post-1945 UN charter, big countries not invading small countries is sort of a key pillar of the international system. So we would have to throw the book at the Kremlin. We would have to basically tell Vladimir Putin, okay, you want to recreate the Soviet empire. You know, you have to accept the costs that come with that, which is the same sort of economic isolation that we saw that the Soviets had. 
which means the technology being cut off, massive sanctions that we're going to go after Russian banks and effectively cut them off. This is where I think Europe, uh, its, its energy dependence on Russia is a huge vulnerability. And what they should do is take a crash course to decarbonize, not to just build LNG facilities, but to just get off uh, gas uh, and get off Russian gas. It's, you know, renewables are now cheaper. They could do a, a mass mobilization there. And then we can sanction uh, maybe not this year or next year, but in the future, the Russian oil and gas sector, which is 50% of Russia's exports. Then we also can do a sort of a global diplomatic offensive, basically to our allies around the world, countries, Gulf states, and say, stop doing business with Russia. And I think the sanctioning of the oligarchs is particularly important, right? Russia is one of the most unequal societies in the world. The oligarchs got their money by effectively taking over the state-run companies in, in gas and oil sectors and uh, in the 90s when everything was chaos. And then Vladimir Putin effectively made them key pillar of the Kremlin regime and under the thumb of the state. And he did that by imprisoning Mikhail Khodorkovsky and sort of threatening oligarchs. So basically, all the oligarch wealth was sort of got through kind of shady, illicit ways. So they're all vulnerable to Russian laws, quote unquote laws coming at them, law enforcement coming at them and potentially imprisoning them. So they have their wealth at the behest of the Russian state and therefore are tools of the Russian state. They have been told to like go to places like London in the UK and buy soccer teams, buy Chelsea Football Club, buy newspapers, uh, donate to the conservative party, put money in, in you know Trump properties. We've seen this sort of corruption of influence. And we see this just in New York. You know, if you look at the the, the wealth going in to a lot of the, the New York skyscrapers, a lot of it is corrupt money. A lot of it comes from Russia. Especially the, those new, uh, what do they call those skyscrapers? The ridiculously uh, They're like pencil ones. skyscrapers or something, right? There's a name for them. I'll <laughs> figure it out. We'll edit it in. It'll sound <laughs> like I knew what, what they were. Uh, but uh, yeah, those but, are those are ridiculous. I, I also wonder... Uh, who lives on the first floor or the <laughs> second floor? I mean, do you get is that really cheap rent on one of those? <laughs> well, maybe it's like, maybe it's the FBI and like CIA have some offices there. I mean, just sort of monitor. I, don't know. I just think it's like, yeah, uh, me and my roommate live on the second floor, and we get it for like 150 a month. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but the anyway, roof deck's uh, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, and I don't see many people here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's empty. You know, um, but, but but so if you go after this wealth. Uh, it's all there, right? It's like here. It's in the U.S. It's in it's in the U.K. It's in Europe. It's in South of France. You are going after a, a, a Russian tool of influence, and you're making very powerful people very pissed off at Vladimir Putin for taking this crazy step to invade Ukraine. And that doesn't necessarily mean his regime will collapse, but it, what you're doing is going after a pillar of the regime. You're weakening it. You're weakening, I think, some of the internal support for Vladimir Putin, and you're depriving him of a tool of influence. And I think this is the critical part. It's also good for us to not have all this corrupt money distorting our property markets distorting our politics, being invested uh, to support sort of pro-Russian or right-wing candidates um, or left-wing candidates. So the anti-kleptocracy agenda is not just about sort of targeting them. It's also about, you know, sort of protecting us and deleveraging from Russian influence. So what are those sanctions that are saying like... Uh... Freezing assets, seizing property. You know, Oleg Deripaska, the oligarch I mentioned, you know, he's got a house here in Washington. It's seizing that. It's taking that and saying, you don't get this anymore. And, and that we're taking this wealth back. 
back. And this is what Alexei Navalny, you know, the imprisoned Russian dissident political leader, um, has called for. You know, he's he's created a list of here are the oligarchs that you, that we should go after. He's mentioned you know Roman Abramovich who owns Chelsea Football Club. Go after him. You know, we can do that. And so I think that's the thing is that o- the oligarch class is incredibly vulnerable because their assets are here. The advantage of doing that also is that the sanctions that we're going to do are going to hurt the Russian public. There's sort of no way around it if Russia invades Ukraine, and that's sort of unfortunate. But going after oligarchs doesn't hurt the Russian public. In fact, I think they would cheer it. So I think it's it's sort of, in that sense, cost-free, where it doesn't have the kind of side effect of hurting the Russian people who, who you know, frankly, probably aren't supporting uh, invasion of, of Ukraine and if they could have a free and fair election, probably wouldn't vote for Vladimir Putin. Are you sure about that? Are you sure about that? Or do they have some pride? Is there, Are there Russians who are going like, damn it, I wish we were the Soviet Union again? Yeah, no, like, I mean, he has he has a clear base of support. I didn't mean to imply that there's no Russians that support him. But I think if there were a free and fair election, I think the opposite, and, you know, Alexei Navalny could run uh, in a competitive way, I think it would be really interesting. And I, I don't think Vladimir Putin would necessarily win, but that's not the Russia that exists. So, and, and we can prevent these oligarchs from like uh, traveling abroad? I mean, to yeah, our I mean, country and bands, to Their children go to American universities. They, you know, o- operate here. I mean, they've integrated into the West, but they are also levers of Russian influence. And so this is where we can use our tools of the state, of DHS, of Treasury Department to do sanctions, of law enforcement to investigate them. And I think it's about making that a uh, overall priority. And I think that will have a real impact. I do also think that we're going to have to sanction the Russian economy in a pretty devastating way and going after Russian banks in particular uh, that are tied to the Western financial system. And that will have a devastating impact on Russia. You know, Putin has he spent the last eight years sort of building up Russia's economic reserves, uh, sort of its rainy day fund. And right now with gas and oil prices high, he's pretty flush with money. But when you start going after the Russian banks, those banks have to be bailed out. They're going to have to pull money for that. Wars are expensive. You know, it's easy that the costs start adding up. Then you prevent Russia from having access to borrow money on the on the sovereign debt markets. And suddenly, you know, I think over time, Putin would have to start making choices. Are, is he going to invest in his military or in the pensioners, which I think make up 40% of, of the Russian state? So he's going to have to make these choices between the economy and the military over time. Let me ask you about the Europeans, because they're the ones who won't get the gas, right? They're our NATO allies, but uh, they, they have a huge stake in this. We're talking with them. Are they going to go for that? Are they going to go for getting their gas cut off? Right now, there's all sorts of conversations. And it's clear the Europeans are more economically exposed and therefore are going to be more reticent about certain things. And that's quite understandable. I think what has been impressive thus far is it looks like there's a good degree of allied unity. I think Germany has sort of been somewhat of the weak link, but then, you know, pressure's put on them and then they go ahead. I think part of what's happening in Europe, though, is that there's a lot of skepticism that Russia will actually invade Ukraine. They think this is all sort of a, a feint for diplomacy, that Vladimir Putin is just sort of doing this to kind of get something out of the West for diplomatic talks. But, you know, he's not that risky. He's not going to invade Ukraine. So I think there's a lot of skepticism. And so then when it becomes something that's hypothetical, a lot of Europeans are like, I don't really want to think in such a hawkish hypothetical way. We're forcing them to do that. I think that's leading to a fairly unified place. But I could see 
U.S. and Europe taking joint action on some things. On others, we just take independent action. And then on others, maybe we'll we'll say, okay, in six months, we're going to do this because we're going to wait and sort of try to unwind our you know the leverage that Russia has over this economic sector. But I think this is going to be a fairly unified approach. And my guess is if Russia invades, that that's going to shock Europe. So those that are skeptical that Russia won't invade will suddenly be like, oh my God. And I think there is sort of a physical presence dimension here where 100,000 troops being invading another country, you know, for us, this is distant. But for Germany, Kiev, I think, or I think Berlin is closer to Kiev than it is to Paris. I, I could be wrong in that, that um, geography. But I think, you know, that puts it in some context that this is happening right there. I think that will lead to a, a pretty, str- a really strong European response. And I think a lot of strong European action when they did it in 2014. We were really nervous that Europe wouldn't adopt sanctions. Angela Merkel eventually sort of came around and pressed for them. And I think we'll see something similar again. Well, we'll see if the new German leadership is, is kind of has that same bent as, as she does. Now, you're, you're saying like, well, we got to convince Europe to go green and I, we got to convince everybody to go green for the sake of the planet and our, all, all of our futures. Uh, but that takes time. So uh, how much LNG can we get them? I mean, <laughs> how feasible is, I mean, is this? We, we have a lot of natural gas in this country, but I, I can't see us uh, making yeah. up for, for what the Russians send over. Russia, if they cut off the gas, would be imposing tremendous costs on Europe. And we would do everything we could to kind of scramble what we can over to Europe. But it's there's just the European energy system is dependent on the pipelines. And they don't have enough, I think, LNG terminals to sort of take in the gas. You know, there's just sort of a physical infrastructure problem here. Sure. Now, that said, you know, there are like if Russia were to cut off the gas, it would be the energy nuclear option. And that would I think, be a total shock to European publics, which would then, I think, lead to this mass effort to, we cannot rely on Russian gas at all. We need to get you know ourselves off of Russian gas. While it would be bad politically, I think, for, for European political leaders, it's also easy to scapegoat it. It's easy to say, Vladimir Putin is causing this. He is making you cold. We need to invest all this money in renewables to get off Russian gas. So I think it would lead to a, a it could mass be a turning effort, point. Yeah, yeah, to deleverage Europe from Russia, and I think it would turn everyone. in, you know, if you're sitting there freezing in your living room, cursing Putin in Germany, you would be like, okay, we need to do something about this. And I think that would lead to a lot of uh, uh, popular support for policies that would not be good in the long run for the Kremlin. No way. I, w- I want to get into the irony of Nord Stream two. Yeah, because uh, uh, Biden uh, kind of didn't we reverse ourselves a little bit, and and there's a lot of opposition to Nord Stream. And what this is is a pipeline that would go that goes directly from Russia to Germany that sort of bypasses Ukraine. And okay. you know, I mean, <laughs> one of the things. So you know, Angela Merkel is a very strong leader in many respects, but she could also kind of speak out of both sides of her mouth. On the one hand, there were strong economic sanctions vis-a-vis Russia. On the other hand, it was her government. Yes, it did have the SPD, which is the the center-left party in Germany as part of their coalition. But, you know, she was chancellor and pushed and supported the Nord Stream 2 project and then came to Washington 
And basically, in her last visit as as chancellor to to Washington, pushed Biden and said, "You can't sanction us. You know, this is an economic project. Let's work out an, a deal." And I think because of her gravitas and and Biden's respect for her agreed to this sort of arrangement where we wouldn't sanction Nord Stream 2, but Germany would not go through with the project if it was clear that Russia was using gas as a geopolitical tool, which is exactly what they're doing, which they've done, you know, in the period since. And so what Nord Stream is, it hasn't yet gone online. Right now it's waiting sort of German and European permitting. And, you know, the permitting process can take a long time, uh, but it's completed. And the thought for a long time is that what was happening was the Russians were withholding gas from Europe um, because they've held back a lot of the the gas supplies as sort of leverage and told the Europeans, well, if you just approve Nord Stream, we'll let the gas flow. But right now there's no gas going through it. So in some ways, sanctioning Nord Stream doesn't end European gas dependence. But what it is a sign of is that Germany wanted to go even further down the road of being dependent on Russian gas. And I think if Russia invades Ukraine, that Nord Stream 2 won't happen. We will either sanction it. And I think what is more likely the German government, and they've said this now recently, after some hemming and hawing, that they wouldn't go through with Nord Stream 2. But I think the larger issue is that how could you go through with Nord Stream 2 now when you see that that gas is a clear geopolitical lever that that the Kremlin may may pull? So in some ways, Nord Stream 2 has been, there's been a little too much focus on it by Ted Cruz and the U.S. Congress. I think it's an important issue. Well, ironically, of course, uh, Democrats uh, and uh, Enviro-Democrats like m- myself would say, no, you know, we don't want Nord Stream 2 because we want to get away from fossil fuels and that's what it is. So, yeah. so I, I'm with Ted. Yeah, no, and I, I think, but what, what's interesting, which, Sorry. And, and, and he got some Democrats, but you know, where was Ted Cruz during the Trump administration? It's, it's yeah, the the return of the Republican Russia hawk. In some ways, I'm I'm thankful. In other ways, there's a, a, well, a real, you know, real he, eye roll going on. Yeah, everything with him is an eye roll. Yes, uh, but, yeah. but the other the other controversial thing in Germany in terms of energy policy is that in retrospect, Merkel's decision to denuclearize to close down Germany's nuclear power plants after the Fukushima disaster. Man, it looks a little foolhardy now, uh, and they're they still have two nuclear reactors going, which are set to be shut down by the end of the year. Um, and this has been a really controversial issue in Germany. It's something that the Green Party has strongly supported getting rid of nuclear power. It's sort of at their core. But uh, I think th- this would also, if Russia invades Ukraine, sort of revive, wait, can we just keep these nuclear power plants going for a couple more more years at least till we can sort of deal with our gas dependence? Because they're trying to go through a transition to decarbonize and denuclearize at the same time. And right now it's leading to more more coal use and more gas use, which isn't great for the for the environment. Yeah, I mean, uh, nuclear has a a much, much lower uh, carbon footprint, of course. You got to figure that warming is more dangerous in the long run than one or two bad nuclear accidents. (laughs) I don't know. That's easy to say. Tough trade. (laughs) Well, uh, first of all. Thank you. I, I, I really believe that uh, they're not going to invade because the Olympics are coming. <laughs> that's, that's how I started. And I, I uh, and if they do invade, which you're basically saying they may not, this may be a bluff. Who knows? Putin may wake up one day and like, you know, take some Prozac and be like, 
you know, ah, oh, God, I almost did this crazy thing. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but, but, so who knows? But it's it's just hard to see What's him he backing like? down. What's Putin like? <laughs> First of all, he doesn't seem to have a sense of humor. I've never seen him like in one of these summits. Yeah. I've never seen him like he and the president laughing. <laughs> I've never seen one of those. No, so, uh, no, you're wrong. Because with Trump, he was at the first time they met. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, he, they, okay. he was having this sort of evil grin chuckle when Trump was like uh, saying how awful all the press were. <laughs> and he was like, yes. <laughs> and it was this sort of really like, you know, stomach churning cackle that um i don't i guess i guess you're right i guess that isn't really a laugh but it was it yeah that's that's a different <laughs> thing that's that's uh you know dr evil you know <laughs> uh we'll keep an eye on this obviously the world will keep an eye on this and uh keep our fingers crossed and hope nobody gets hurt <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry why did i laugh at that um it's just that's the kind of thing my mom would say. Let's hope no one gets hurt. <laughs> well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this, perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients, popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.